0: Assalamu Alaikum. Greetings of peace. Uh, my name is Safir Ahmed. I serve as the editor of Innovashio, a publication of Zaytuna College in Berkeley, California. Today we are honored to have with us Chris Hedges. For those not familiar with him, I suspect there's very few, but quick introduction first, and then we'll dive into our topic for the day. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and an author. He has reported globally, spent 15 years in foreign bureaus of the New York Times, reporting primarily from war-torn societies where there is no rule of law. He has taught courses in the U.S. in drama, literature, philosophy, and history. He's taught at many universities, especially Columbia University, Princeton, New York University, and the University of Toronto. Chris has also authored 15 books on politics and religion. And I do want to call out his latest book, which is called Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. It's a book based on the course that he taught at East Jersey State Prison, in which his students studied famous plays and playwrights and then wrote a play of their own called Caged. Chris is also a Presbyterian minister, and he is a contributor to Renovatio. I urge you all, if you haven't seen it, to check out a um, conversation recorded with uh, President Hamza Youssef, uh, who's also the editor-in-chief of Renovatio. Uh, as part of the Seven Deadly Sins series, and the conversation between Chris and him was uh, about the sin of wrath. You can find it on our website, ranavashio.zaituna.edu. Today, we'll be discussing issues that Chris raised in his recent article. It's titled, How the Cult of the Self Undermines the Rule of Law. You can also read that essay online, and I urge you all to read it. It's an excellent piece. Chris Hedges, welcome to the Ranavashio Podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Safir. Let's begin with it. You, your essay points to modern societies, including the United States, where we mostly have good laws, but for various reasons, people are undermining those laws. But at the start of your essay, you also state that the rule of law is essentially neutral, meaning it can be used by tyrants or fascists, you know, in, in, in very very mean and, and disruptive ways. But it and what makes it a force for good, as you point out, is the inculcation of personal morality, which then translates to social or public morality. Can you talk about what that looks like in an ideal society, the idea of personal morality and societal morality? What does it mean to live a virtuous life, and how does that translate to societal morality?
1: Well, as you pointed out, the genesis of this entire essay comes from the Propagation of the cult of the self, which is at the core of consumer society. And the uh, qualities that are celebrated in the cult of the self are antithetical to a moral life and to a society built on justice. So, what are those qualities? It's self aggrandizement, it's manipulation, it's a penchant for lying. It's an incapacity for remorse or empathy, and it is the belief that you can do anything or anything is justified for your own personal advancement. And unfortunately, those figures, uh, Donald Trump might be a, a good place to start, those figures that embody those qualities are often celebrated within the society, whether it's achieving celebrity status or wealth or political power, once that position is achieved, then all of the nefarious methods that were used to arrive at that point are uh, tacitly justified. If you watch reality television, it's just a mini version of this. Those people who achieve the final, whether it's on Survivor or anything else, who who uh, manage to come out on top, essentially are embracing uh, these very negative social values. And I would argue that these are the values of corporations as well. And it's now just writ large within the society. And I think social media has exacerbated it. Social media is not about communication. It's not about truth. It's not about building friendships. It's not about building community. It is really a form of self-presentation. Uh, what uh, Bernstein called, or Borstein called, Life the Movie. And it has had an extremely negative effect uh, in terms of social, political, and moral terms within American culture. And that, of course, affects the system of justice, the rule of law itself.
0: Yeah. So let's pick up on that. I think you made an interesting point, And I actually wanted to uh, read a quick short paragraph from your essay, which I think, and I I have a question um, based on that. So here's what you said in the article. The cult of the self has within it the classic traits of psychopaths, superficial charm, grandiosity, and self-importance, a need for constant stimulation, a penchant for lying, deception, and manipulation, and the inability to feel remorse or guilt. This is the twisted ethic of predatory capitalism the belief that personal style and personal advancement mistaken for individualism are the same as democratic equality now i know there's a lot packed into that but i want to focus on the on the point here with your reference to the twisted ethic of, of predatory capitalism can you explain the cl- connection between that kind of predatory capitalism you're you're thinking of and how it fosters and actually benefits from the cult of the self What's that relationship? How does that work?
1: Well, so what's the logic of a corporation? Uh, And Carl Polanyi writes about this in The Great Transformation, his book on the consequences of unregulated, unaccountable corporate power. And it is that you therefore exploit human beings and the natural world until exhaustion or collapse. Uh, And that's why unregulated capitalism is such a dangerous force. Now you can get into the debate of whether you could build a society without capitalist structures, I I come out of, you mentioned that I'm a Presbyterian, I come out of Calvin, very dark view of human nature. Uh, So I think many people are driven by self-interest. However, that self-interest has to be contained and controlled when it becomes the dominant ethic of a society, uh, then you build social structures that become predatory uh, against both human beings and the natural world, which is what we have done. Corporations function as totalitarian systems. Uh, They are completely hierarchical. You cannot bring in any kind of political stance within those corporations, even if you take unpopular stances, uh, political stances in your free time outside the corporation. You can be punished and there's a corporate mindset that essentially forces you, no matter what your moral stance is, to conform to the very dark ethic of corporate power, which is again about exploitation. I mean that Karl Marx got that right. That it's it, there are two mantras for the capitalist, and that is reducing the cost of production, which usually means subjugating and impoverishing labor and increasing profit. If you don't hold fast to that, you can be even the CEO of a major corporation, but if you don't reduce the cost of production and increase profit, you're out. They'll find somebody else to do it. So that, again, takes precedence over, we can talk about the fossil fuel industry, the very ecosystem on which we depend for life in the hands of Chevron or ExxonMobil or BP or any of these corporations whatever kind of personal morality people may have. And we know, of course, that these corporations going all the way back to the 70s, internal studies were well aware of the effects of climate change. But, of course, nothing is done because it is about the primacy of profit and the primacy of exploitation. And that's why I quote often John Ralston Saul, the great Canadian philosopher, who talks about the slow motion corporate coup d'etat that's taken place and it's effectively over, and, and and it brings with it that ethic. Uh, and, and I think that's partly why you see such hostility to independent moral forces, including religious forces. This is a very secular ideology that is, is an anathema to, I mean, even the study of the humanities, I mean, the, the proper study of the humanities in universities is to question or to help students formulate the kinds of questions by which they can question assumptions and structures. Without that language, uh, if you don't know how to ask the question, you can't begin to search for the answer. Uh, And so that's where you see the whole vocational aspect of education, whether that's at a low level in charter schools, in poor neighborhoods, but even at large elite universities. Uh, I went to Harvard, I taught at Princeton, the, the the primary major is computer science. And even at those universities, you're watching the humanities wither away. And we won't even get into a discussion about philosophy departments, which are being axed right and left, as well as the study of religion or ethics. It's it's uh, at, at best at most universities an afterthought. Uh, and, and when you look at many state schools, for instance, uh, they rely on corporate funding, not, not only grants, but but even to fund whole departments. And of course, the humanities are just not going to be able to get that kind of money, bring that kind of money into the university because it doesn't serve corporate power. Uh, So when I taught at Princeton, the robotics department was largely funded by the defense department because they they specialize in underwater robotics at Princeton. Uh, And these are very useful to the military-industrial complex. That's just a small example. It happens at every university. So there's a deforming of society, ethically, morally, to kind of fit uh, within this particular structure. It is ultimately, the way it's fueled, is it's all about the celebration of us at the expense of everyone else, which is turning, I think, religious, traditional religious thought, whether that's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, on its head, where it's not about us. It's about the vulnerable. It's about the weak. It's about the widows, the orphans. You know, you get that out of the Quran, You get that out of the Hebrew Bible and everywhere else. And so I think the tradition that you come out of, the tradition that I come out of, is very much an anathema to the, I don't want to call it ethical, but to the value structure uh, that is being implanted now under the corporate state and embraced by institutions that essentially are training or rearing people to function within
0: this society. You raise an interesting thing, but the thought that comes to my mind is as individuals, all that you said, it makes complete sense. I mean, the, the self-interest of the corporations and the institutions and how they manipulate and 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 control, you know, without overtly seeming to control anything. But at some level, we as individuals are sort of complicit in all of that, right? I mean, you know, people say, "Well, it's too bad they have sweatshops," but everybody will buy an iPhone. You know what I mean? So there's no connect. There's a disconnect between our what we claim we believe and want to see, but we don't act on it. You know, so I'm just curious about what, from a to change the focus to uh, to the individual a little bit. And you mentioned religion, so I'll say I'll give you this. I mean, for instance, in the Quran, you know, there's a verse which is quite well known and people quote it a lot, which is that God does not change the condition of a people until they change the, their own condition, right? Um, until they change themselves. And the lesson for us is to be introspective um, and guard ourselves to be a virtuous person. Uh, different words, you know, very clearly says again, very well known, enjoin the good and forbid the bad. It seems that other religions also teach similar, you know, uh, struggle or teach us to struggle against our lower selves, right? So I'm curious about what is your faith and your tradition, you know, teach that and 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 is that something, is the focus not, at, it, it is on helping the poor and all of that that you mentioned, but it's also on kind of taking care of ourselves first and, and making sure we live a certain, you know, a certain kind of life and we show up in public Life in a certain way, with certain you know character and virtues um, uh, in a character in that sense.
1: Right. So Paul Paul Tillich once said, you know, there aren't any atheists. Everybody has a god. It just depends which one you worship. Some people worship the idols of greed or power. He calls it. What is he asks? What is your ultimate concern? So if your ultimate concern is yourself, if you have spent your life building a monument to yourself, then in biblical terms, that's idolatry. And I think we live in an idolatrous society because we are encouraged to build little monuments to ourselves at the expense of others. I think it's extremely difficult for people to achieve a moral life without a community. Alternative communities that challenge uh, this ethic, that challenge Corporate capitalism that challenged the narcissism and hedonism of the consumer culture have withered away. Uh, Hannah Arendt, interestingly enough, when she talks about mass man in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she said the prerequisite for the mass man is not brutality. The prerequisite is social isolation, because those people are tempted into a foe or a false community built around an ideology, even an ideology of hatred. And if they pay fealty to that ideology of hatred, then they are embraced. But, of course, the moment they question that ideology of hatred, they become pariahs and outcasts. So there's a tremendous price. It's not a real community. It celebrates communal or collective thinking. Again, hierarchical, top-down. I wrote a book on the Christian right. And in many of these megachurches, they function as cults. I mean, I read Margaret Singer's great book, Cults, in our midst. And uh, it was fascinating how similar her description of a generic cult fit with many of these Christian right institutions, including led by usually a white male, almost always a white male Quote unquote, pastor. These people are, you know, don't actually have divinity school degrees usually, who is in touch with God, who can never be questioned. Any kind of your own self doubt or self questioning becomes heretical, backsliding. So I, I think that it's, it's very difficult if you're not given the linguistic tools, if you're not educated to be, to begin to ask the questions. And number two, I think it's very difficult to do it alone. And I think that's a point that Hannah Arendt makes. And many of the great writers on totalitarianism, Fred Stern, for instance, and Hannah Arendt and others, uh, in in Stern's book, The Politics of Cultural Despair, he talks about as the starting point for totalitarianism, that despair. Because loneliness is really about despair. Alienation is about despair. And I wrote a book, America, The Farewell Tour, drawing out of Emile Durkheim. Uh, so Durkheim, in his book on suicide, the great French sociologist, sets out asks the question: What is it that drives individuals and societies to carry out acts of collective self-annihilation? Freud would call it the death instinct, uh, Thanatos, and I would argue that we are a society enthralled with the death instinct. And he said it is the rupturing of social bonds. That's where to get the term anime, and that when those social bonds are destroyed, that then people begin to act out in ways that are self-destructive. It's about self-annihilation. So in that book, I look at the major ways within society we are essentially destroying ourselves, gambling. I wrote that chapter out of the Trump Taj Mahal before Trump announced that he was running for president. The uh, whole pornification of uh, American society, the sexual sadism that has become normalized, I also wrote about that in Empire of Illusion, the opioid crisis, Uh, hate groups. I mean, Durkheim says that those who seek the annihilation of others are driven for longings of self-annihilation. And so that book really tried to look at the various deadly pathologies that are rippling across the American landscape that are triggered. The rupture of these social bonds, the atomization, that's again a term from Hannah Arendt, which she Considers atomized human beings to be extremely vulnerable to recruitment into these death cults. Let's call them what they are. So, I think you're right that it, that that. Or the, let's take that passage from the Quran that it begins with us. However, when you've built a social structure that essentially cuts you off, that cuts off. The bond the bonds that you have with those around you, then you become very, very susceptible to these negative forces. You see it in the oath Keepers and the proud boys, and I would argue the Christian right. I, I have called the Christian right heretics, and I think they are. It's heretical. I think they have acculturated the worst aspects of white supremacy and imperialism and capitalism with the Bible. I mean, sacralized it. Jesus, you just cannot read, you don't have to go to Harvard Divinity School, as I did for three years, to figure out that Jesus didn't come to make us rich, or that somehow Jesus might bless the dropping of iron fragmentation bombs all over the Middle East, or that our neighbor is somehow satanic, the Samaritan, of course, I'm pulling from that story, because our neighbor doesn't believe what we believe. All of that is heretical. It's a it's complete perversion of the Christian gospel. And yet, of course, as, if you mention the word religion now, and I think this is part of the liberal Christian tradition that I come out of, they failed. They did not confront these people as the way they they should have in the name of tolerance, which is a word Martin Luther King never used. And now we're paying for it. I mean, that that, that connecting tissue of Christian fascism is what knit uh, the people on January 6th and all these disparate groups, but they were knit together by that that very dark ideology.
0: You make a good point about that. On the other hand, I want to ask you about religious groups that are so more aligned, let's say, with the left as well. Uh, Do you think that religious leaders in the past 50 years or so in your lifetime and mine, really, we're about the same age, uh, who focused on, you know, there was a kind of a they focused more on systemic you know, problems and perhaps at the expense of focusing more on the flock, so to speak, on their flock, meaning that their intentions were good, but do you think they ignored and downplayed personal morality? And was that a mistake?
1: I don't think so. I, I think that you're right to differentiate the importance between social morality and personal morality, but you can't have one without the other. What is, I'm going to butcher the quote from Martin Luther King, that justice is uh the kind of public manifestation of love that's the idea i can't remember the exact quote um but they can't be divorced i mean my father was a presbyterian minister who was very involved in the civil rights movement the anti war movement the gay rights movement at the end of his life my uncle was gay so uh but there there has to be a balance i think you're right in that there has to be uh both but we lived in a very we didn't work on the sabbath there was no alcohol in our house i mean And I think you need both the structure around the personal morality and the public morality. And I think that the attacks against socially active clergy, such as my father, often use that argument that somehow uh, they were neglecting their personal morality or the personal morality of their flock for a public morality. From my own case, that definitely wasn't true. In fact, I think that clergy that, for instance, during the Vietnam War were extremely effective in a way that many of the uh, student protesters, uh, not to mention groups like the Yippies and others, were not in bringing back that anti-war message to the mainstream, to the middle class, to their congregations. I mean you're right that you have to have both you can't have one without the other Daniel Berrigan the great radical catholic priest along with Thomas Merton of course wrote quite a bit about this so Berrigan who was in and out of jail his whole life burned they burned draft records and then prayed around the burning records till they were arrested he spent 2 years in federal prison but he was acutely aware of of that the importance of both sides and he writes quite a bit about him, and, and he would go on retreats uh, with Merton at the Trappist Monastery. So, and before they carried out actions, there was fasting and prayer, and, and I, so, yes, I mean, I think you're right, that. but I, I, I know that is often a criticism that's leveled at people who embrace the social gospel, but I, I was a boy, but I, my father dragged me off to these demonstrations, so I was in that milieu, even though I was young. And I, uh, at least from my experience, thought there there was an understanding that both were vital.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, I want to pick up on that. And you say something in your article which I think speaks to an element of this that I want to bring up. You talk about the rule of law, and then you say that you know that that it's ultimately based on intangibles, as you call them. Basically, you know, faith and reason, uh, being able to delineate you know truth from untruth but you also say at one point that these intangibles are inculcated into society through religious belief and education, as well as through democratic participation. Do you think that part of the moral decay we are witnessing is because of the decline of religion in general, of religious schools? And if yes, what explains that decline? What, what, What happened there?
1: Well, I can speak out of my own tradition. Sure. And what happened in the liberal Christian church, is that the cult of the self infected the church deeply as it affected the rest of society. So let's just take how spirituality becomes defined. Uh, It's how is it with me, which fits with the cult of the self and with narcissism. Uh, And again, that, for me, flips uh, one of the fundamental religious values on its head, because the the primary question is not how is it with me, but how is it with you? That's Boober's I and Thou. And, uh, and so the church is not immune from the effects of the wider society. Uh, the stance of clergy such as my father was against the Vietnam War in the civil rights movement. We lived in an all white farm town where Martin Luther King was one of the most hated men in America. This was disturbing for many people in the congregation. But I think, though, as you go back to any prophet who stands up for justice, the message is disturbing and entails a cost. And if it doesn't entail a cost, it's probably not that moral. And so the response of the church was to retreat into itself, not to confront what Kant would call the forces of radical evil on the outside, but focus on interior lives at the expense of social morality. And I think there, going back to your question, in fact, what the church did is walk away from social morality and put all of its emphasis on personal morality, which is important, uh, but devoid of social morality is impotent. It, 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 It actually doesn't transform society in any meaningful way. I would also say that uh, the great line from Abraham Heschel. He was the rabbi who marched with King, and other he marched with King on sa- Saturday when on Shabbat, and he was criticized by other rabbis. And Heschel said, "Well, I march with my feet. I I pray with my feet." And I think that that there is that understanding that involvement in issues of social justice. And in a public morality is vital to the sustenance of our own faith, our own belief system, and I would say our own spirituality. That, and I think King writes about this beautifully at the end of his book, Strength to Love. There's a bomb uh, thrown at his house, his children are inside, and he's thinking of giving up, and he's sitting in his kitchen, and he writes this beautiful meditation and that he's overcome by that spiritual force to fight for the good. But I think that if you don't confront radical evil, and if you don't understand that that, that evil is real, then it's hard to tap into that spiritual force. We have to defy evil in big and small ways. Uh, and when you defy radical evil in the public sphere, it can get you killed. It's dangerous. Uh, I
0: saw it, whether it was Oscar Romero in El Salvador or king or anyone else. You know, you made an interesting point there about how even religious um, institutions or or pastors or how there was a time when they would actually influence society, but now they're under the influence of, you know, they're vulnerable to the, the larger social forces, if you will. There's an interesting teaching in Islam. You know, we, we talk about how the scholars, meaning religious leaders, you know, good scholars, religious leaders... Scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. You know, like that's the idea is that that they, you look to them to guide you in in, in these kind of matters, right? If you step back from the things you were talking about, we're discussing right. right now, and look at this complete, back to the cult of the self in a way, but this complete degradation of culture that we, you and I have witnessed in our lifetime, in the last 50 years or so, let's say. There are many reasons for it. Obviously, it's not a simple matter, but, you know, there's people talk about the loss of metaphysics, the loss of religious life and active religious life and communities of religion. You, your point about communities is really important, I think, that that it's not just the individual. It has to be supported by a, a community of people. But also, you know, there's all these other factors in universities and stuff, the critical theory idea, the whole kind of what I would call a European import, if you will, with, with critical theory and Foucault and you know, Marcuse and everybody else in the Frankfurt School. What do you think are the primary thing factors that led to that cultural decline and this kind of, you know, cult of the self is where we're at, is nihilism where we're at almost. But what, what are the key factors do you see society-wide and in, in, in your lifetime that you witnessed?
1: Well, I would first cite the, the wealth of the United States, uh, now the country, of course, with social inequality, isn't what it was immediately after World War II, even into the 1960s. But still, it's a a country that has a kind of affluence, and that affluence is seductive. We measure people's worth by the amount of wealth that they attain. If we look at many of the radicals, I remember being with Ralph Nader in his office, and he had a picture of a bunch of lawyers, Nader's Raiders who in the sixties and seventies went after corporations and he just said, you know, that's a corporate law lawyer. That's a corporate. So uh, that ideal is easy to get seduced with the kind of money that you can make away from that focus on uh, social justice, which I think is, is, you know, defines a life of meaning. We know from the early seventies corporations went after the left within universities and I think have effectively captured them. We cannot exclude the erosion of the media into now forms of entertainment. And I, they've siloed the media to cater, including my old employer, the New York Times. They silo the media to cater to a particular demographic. They tell that demographic what it wants to hear. And then the flip side of that is they demonize the other demographic. That's the left and the right. So there's a breakdown in terms of an ability to communicate, and I saw those kinds of divides within Yugoslavia. So I think there's several forces at work. Students don't study ethics. Uh, I mean, I suppose you do if you still go to divinity school or Islamic college or you know rabbinical school, but the numbers are just withering away. I mean, the seminaries are depleted, closing right and left. Uh, that. Again, that liberal religious tradition that I come out of is in steep decline. If, I mean, just in terms of numbers, churches are being sold off. In many cases, we ourselves are culpable. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily, to- can totally b- be blamed on societal forces. But it, it is essentially the, that, that old ethic. And we can go all the way back to the turn of the century with Rauschenbusch, and the social gospel. You know, these were powerful movements at one point in American history. And I think that they've just been capsized. And, and you reach a point where the very language you speak is not even intelligible to the wider society. It doesn't even make sense to them anymore. Plato writes about this, of course, in in The Republic, where Socrates goes to trial. And he said, it's useless for me to carry out a defense, because it's like, somebody who stole a piece of bread going before the baker. They don't even speak the language to understand that deeper morality that exists. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, that is now within the society has become almost impossible to speak in this language. I mean, you know, and you talk about the left. Well, the last acceptable prejudice I know because I felt it in the left is against people who come out of a religious tradition. I'm often made fun of. I mean, I jeered even, I debated, I was very critical of the black bloc during the Occupy movement, and after there was a debate with me, and about 80 of these guys came all dressed in black with their faces covered, and any time I would say anything, they would jeer and shout amen. You know, they would would ridicule the tradition that I came out of. Uh, And that is an acceptable prejudice in the left. So I think there are innumerable factors that
0: have brought us to this point. Yeah, no. Thanks for that. I mean, I do think that the last point you just made is, is 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 an important one, which is, you know, I come out of the left tradition in many ways myself, but I think that the what's happened now is that the left has kind of becomes, in my eyes, more hostile or hostile to religion. People are gravitating more towards the conservative um, um, uh, people because they still come from a tradition of Christianity or faith, not. You know the, the evangelicals you were talking about. I'm talking more about just the the, the uh, conservative thinkers, and the idea of justice and social justice um, that you brought up. I want to get to that, which is, you know, we I believe, and we believe in in in, in it's a religious teaching that you know we should struggle for justice. We should look push for social justice, but ultimately there will be justice. And the religious belief is that there will be justice, whether it's here in this life or in the afterlife, but they, people will be held accountable for everything we do. You know, that's our uh, fundamental belief. But that seems to have also gone, we've set aside both on the left and the right, this idea that if you don't get justice now, there is no justice. You know, so so, they, so that leads people to, I think, almost a, acting out in ways that you become like the enemy you're fighting in some ways, you know, you, you, those, those means become acceptable in, in, in doing that. Um, any thoughts on that at all? I'm just curious.
1: So I remember know. asking Dan Berrigan how he defined faith. And
0: uh-huh. he said,
1: the belief that the good draws to it the good. And he said that, you know, the Buddhists call it karma, but we as Christians, we don't know where it goes. So empirically, everything around you can be worse than it was, which is probably true in my own case, that every cause you fought for the, the situation is more dire, but that doesn't invalidate what you do and I think that the good does draw to it the good. I saw that in war zones, but I think that's what it is intangible, which is what faith is. so we don't know where it goes, but faith is is the belief that it goes somewhere that it's not futile that it it exists even after our own lifetime and I've often told this story in May have told it to you, but I'll tell it again. I would cover the revolution in Czechoslovakia, the Velvet Revolution. I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night with Vaslav Havel and Dinsbyer and Klaus and everybody who inherit the government after the fall of the communist regime. In 1968, when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to overthrow Dubček and impose a pro-Soviet regime, the the, the anthem of defiance was sung by a very famous Czech singer Marta Kubasheva is called A Prayer for Marta. Well, once they took over, she was banned from the airwaves. Her recording stock was destroyed. Uh, she worked in the intervening years on an assembly line at a toy factory. And I was there with half a million, 500,000 Czechs on a December, snowy December night. And she walked out on that balcony in front of the crowd and began to sing A Prayer for Marta and every Czech, most of whom were born after 1960, knew every word. And, I, and Sakharov writes about this, so does Solzhenitsyn. I, I think that we can't underestimate the power of the good, uh, which is why tyrants work so hard to silence often those very lonely voices, those prophetic voices, because I think while the wider public doesn't often at the moment understand the power of truth, and Havel writes about this as well in The Power of, of the Powerless uh, essay. But I think that, uh, that uh, tyrants do understand how dangerous it is. And so I think that faith is the belief that it goes somewhere, uh, that, that, that it's worth it, that it's worth even, you know, tremendous sacrifice.
0: Yeah, speaking to the power of good, I think it's, uh, you mentioned in the, the very end of your article, um, your essay on the cult of the self. You use a phrase that's a quote from, uh, you know, W.H. Auden's um, September 1, 1939 uh, poem, where he refers to, you know, himself, but it's really about, and the phrase is the ironic points of light, that that's the force of good, the people who are just and who people who are, um, so he talks about that. And that's really an important thing, I think, in which is we do what we can to, to resist the temptations and to resist the 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 becoming like our the the, the very people we, we were struggling against. So I want to ask you one last question before we end this, which is: Talk to me about what that looks like for you personally. For anybody listening to us, what advice do you have that you know about how we we show up, how we participate? Uh, I mean, you I admire you for you know not being. So ideological, you really call the shots as you see them and you've been writing, you've written recently about, you know, identity groups and, 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 and the problem they've, they've created in a different way. So tell us about what you think, how we as individuals can show up, whatever sphere um, we are in, whether we're students, whether we're workers, whether, whether we're, you know, scholars, how we can show up and, and what resistance to these things looks like and what uh, living a virtuous life uh, looks like and how we show up?
1: Well, I don't think you can teach morality in the end. I think you have to show what the moral life is about. It really requires an understanding that, it, number one, it's not about you, and it's and certainly not about your career. And the career, especially when you get to, you know, let's say, the level of the New York Times, can uh, be an idol uh, that you sacrifice your morality in order to retain. And I confronted the New York Times over I was very outspoken against the invasion of Iraq, and I'd been the Middle East Bureau Chief of the New York Times, so I spent seven years in the Middle East. Was, Iraq was a country I knew well, for all, all and I uh, denounced the calls to invade Iraq for all the reasons we now know, of course. But that destroyed my career. But, you know, I didn't need the imprint of the New York Times to tell me who I was. I knew who I was. And I think that uh, it it requires independence. It requires... The belief, as we spoke about just a little while ago, that the good draws to it, the good, even if we can't see in that immediate moment, the effect, and that that in the end, for those of us who come out of a religious tradition, evil is real. It is real, and it must be fought. And when you truly take on evil, it's a very dangerous game to play, because evil, radical evil will stop at nothing in order to retain its power. And I think that confrontation, which again, you know, if, if that is your sole occupation in life, then you will essentially be destroyed spiritually, that there has to be a, the sustenance of a personal morality as well. There has to be a time for a personal morality. Uh, Berrigan again writes about this, a time for reflection, a time in order to to remove yourself from the contaminants of society, in order to confront society. But I think that's, you know, ultimately what we're called. We're called to fight those forces, which are, again, within a secular society, often dismissed or minimalized. But I think those of us who come out of a religious tradition are acutely aware of these forces of the death instinct um, and uh, and that the, at death instinct has to be fought at all costs uh, on behalf of the forces of life, those forces that nurture, protect, sustain life, and that it is this, uh, we'll go to Freud, Freud writes about it, this cosmic battle between what he calls Eros and Thanatos. And as Freud said, it, both within individuals and societies, at any time one of these forces is ascendant, And I think we live in an age of the death instinct. I mean, quite literally, we're flirting now with nuclear Armageddon. When you see the world that way, uh, then not to react against that evil uh, is essentially a denial of not just a social morality, but ultimately your own religious orientation of the world.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I think uh, I want to end by saying what you just pointed out. People who give up careers or give up, you know, things for for their ethical principles, we have to honor those people. Those are the heroes, you know. Those are the people that are actually standing by, you know. they especially from the religious tradition, but even just, you know, people who are not particularly religious. So, on the last, I want to end it by kind of saying, I that's one of the reasons, both uh, I myself, but everybody at Zaituna and uh, President Hamza Yusuf, I think. We all sort of honor you for what you have been doing, what you have done in your past and what you continue to do, because you are somebody who lives according to the principle. Like that story you told about the New York Times and why you left the New York Times, you know, and how you were asked not to protest against the war. And that was your, you know, uh, the tipping point for you. and and And, and you walked away from it. So we honor you and, and I, think, uh, I thank you for everything you're doing and I uh, pray for um, success for you for everything you're doing uh, and, and I hope you continue to do that. So thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate you taking the time and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Sophia.